Our scripture reading today comes from John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Tom, and uh, welcome to, to the Leewood campus. We're really delighted you are here and uh, so grateful that you would uh, join us. Recently, the name Kevin Strickland uh, emerged on the Kansas City scene. Maybe you heard about his story. Kevin Strickland was released from prison, can you imagine, after having spent 43 years behind bars for a triple murder he did not commit. It's hard for all of us, I think, to grasp what it must be like to be innocent and falsely accused like that. Imagine with me for a moment what it would be like for you. Imagine you being arrested and falsely accused. You know you're innocent, but no one believes you. You sit in jail day after day. Finally, the day comes for your trial. You change out of your orange jumpsuit, put on something more presentable, and you enter the courtroom, and there's the judge and the jury. Your heart races, and your stomach does cartwheels. You take the stand eventually on your own behalf. You testify. You make a compelling case. But you know with all the negative press around the case, it'll be hard for people to believe you. You make your case. Thankfully, it's not just you. You have three compelling, incredible witnesses. The first witness is a friend of yours. She takes the stand and declares there's no way you could have ever been at this place. There is an airtight al uh, alibi. And so you take a quick breath. The second witness is a surveillance camera footage. 
from the actual scene. Everyone watches in the courtroom. There is nothing that implicates you. In fact, the person on the camera looks nothing like you. And there is another sigh of relief. The third witness, if you can imagine, is all the collected evidences from the scene. There's no DNA. There's no fingerprints. There is nothing that places you there. And you can't help but feel hopeful as the jury walks out of the courtroom to decide your fate. But you are startled when after only 10 minutes, the jury marches right back into the courtroom. None of them look at you. And then before it can even register, you hear the verdict, guilty. There is sudden panic and terror that overwhelms you. You sink to your knees. How could this happen? It is very clear, painfully obvious, that they wanted to declare you guilty. Clearly, they had already made up their mind long before the trial. They looked past the evidence. They dismissed your testimony. They ignored three credible witnesses. The unjust verdict condemns you right now. This literary scene is presented to us in similar fashion by the brilliant gospel writer John in our text this morning. John recounts Jesus' words to religious leaders who are hell-bent on rejecting and condemning him despite all the evidence to the contrary. They are so motivated to condemn Jesus, they have already decided the verdict in their hearts. They are so convinced that Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, that he can't be the answer they're looking for, they've already dismissed him. They are certain. They are fully convinced they are right. Now, of course, we wouldn't do that, would we, in our time? Again, we may hear Jesus' words and say to ourselves things like, well, that's pretty hard. Or, Jesus didn't really mean that, did he? Uh, Jesus was a good person, of course, fine, but I'm not going to follow him like that. If we are honest this morning, some of us have already made up our verdict about Jesus. We sort of pick and choose the things we like about him. And we reject anything that gets in the way of our desires or our comforts. We may like what Jesus says about love and heaven and things like that, but our sexuality, our money, caring for the marginalized, loving our enemies, being concerned about injustice, Nah, I'm, not, I'm good on that, right? Or we may consider ourselves a Christian. Or maybe we don't today. I don't know. Maybe wherever you are, you're wrestling with Jesus. And when it comes to Jesus, John wants us to address a timeless question. What will your verdict be about him? If you have a Bible, turn with me to the New Testament book of John, chapter 5. Now, this morning, as has already been said, is Palm Sunday, and this is an important day in the Christian calendar, which begins what Christians call Holy Week. 
And Palm Sunday again reminds us of Jesus marching into Jerusalem with the adulation of the crowds. But it also reminds us that soon he'll be betrayed and put on trial by the religious leaders. But what we may miss is that before Jesus is put on trial during Holy Week, John gives us a hint that there is an earlier trial. Here in John chapter 5, Jesus puts himself on trial before the religious leaders who are falsely accusing him. It is like a defense attorney, and Jesus calls in our text this morning witnesses to the stand to plead his messianic case, and it is captured with the utmost brilliance in verses 30 through 47. So I'd like us to explore that a bit, and I'd like us to explore three witnesses that John highlights. The testimony of a credible eyewitness, signs of the supernatural, and the writings of Holy Scripture. This is how the text flows. First, the first witness is the testimony of a credible eyewitness. Notice verses 32 to 35. Jesus points right away in our text to an eyewitness testimony. We need to remember if we have a background in this, or we study the, the Bible, certainly Jesus' conversation reflects this, that in Deuteronomy, for example, in the Old Testament book, that any verdict could only be declared if there were two or three credible witnesses, right? So Jesus understands that. His listeners understand that. And so he begins here, verses 32 and 33. Jesus says these words. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, that is John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Now, if you've been with us in our series in the Gospel of John, John gives an inordinate uh, prominence to John the Baptist early in his gospel. For example, let me just remind us, John the Baptist declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John also, earlier in chapter 1, gives personal eyewitness testimony to remarkable claims. For example, he says, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. But not only that, think of what John the Baptist has said of Jesus earlier in John. After me comes, notice the picture of divinity, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So John's credibility as an eyewitness to Jesus, as the Son of God, is massively reinforced by his willingness to declare the most difficult truths that violate any cultural plausibility. The other gospel writers make a point, a strong point, to let us know that John the Baptist was not an ear tickler to gain the fickle applause of the crowd. Quite the contrary. John the Baptist is known as being a bold truth teller. And it's his bold truth telling that gives him extra credibility to his testimony about Jesus. When we bring that to our time, we think of the credibility of someone like John the Baptist. There are others, right? In the 19th century, the freed slave Frederick, Frederick Douglass became a bold truth teller confronting the Christian church and a nation regarding the evil and injustice of, uh, of slavery. And in the 20th century, the German pastor theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, spoke a powerful word to the Lutheran church and to the nation who had bowed to Hitler and to nationalism and to Nazi tyranny. This is the picture that brings greater credibility to the hard-hitting words of John the Baptist. And when we hear these bold truth-tellers, they challenge us in our time as well. 
to not settle for the status quo or for a compromised, cultural accommodated Christianity. Those who boldly challenge us in our time, rightly so, to stand up for the unborn, to live into God's design for male and female for human sexuality, or who address racial injustice. And for us, do we dismiss their voices or let their bold truth-telling witness point us back to Jesus and his grace and mercy and transforming love? See, throughout the Gospel of John and the New Testament, there is this incredibly strong emphasis on the personal eyewitness testimony, which is the strongest evidence of truth. And there are many bold, truth-telling witnesses that go against the cultural plausibility of the day to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that make this massive truth claim of Jesus. And they compel anyone who's open to the evidence to be open to Jesus and who he really is. Now, you may be here this morning and uh, are skeptical about the Christian faith. Or maybe you identify as a Christian. Maybe you've been in church all your life. But, man, you know, there's a lot of things in your life you're really wrestling with. And you're wrestling with your faith. I get that. See, the Christian faith is remarkably good news. But it does, properly understood, make some very life-altering, game-changing, exclusive truth claims that are dizzying. And even though these truth claims are really, really big, let me just say they are not some wish dream or blind leap in the dark or a religious opiate to bring some mirage of meaning to our lives and get us through the week. C.S. Lewis, who has probably spoken the best in this area, was, if you know his story, was a convinced atheist, a comfortable atheist who was converted to Christianity. And he reminds us something really important. Again, he has said it better than anyone I know, and I want to quote him, and I want to go slow because I think he speaks so well to this text, what Jesus is saying. Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And Lewis goes on, that is one thing we must not say. A man who merely, who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher at all. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. And Lewis says, rightly, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall on, at his feet and call him Lord and God. And then Lewis says, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The gospel writer John places us right here in Lewis's trilemma. Jesus is either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord God himself. And we can't honestly dismiss Jesus as a merely good moral teacher or pick and choose the parts we like and discard the parts we don't like. This option is not open to us. That is, unless, like the religious leaders of the first century, we have already, in our hearts and minds, convinced ourselves against 
the compelling evidence. So the first witness John gives us about who Jesus is and why he matters is the eyewitness testimony of John the Baptist. But notice where he goes next in the text. That is the second witness, the signs of the supernatural. Look at verses 36, verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now notice the phrase in English, the very works that he is doing or I am doing. Jesus is primarily referring to the supernatural work that cannot be explained by natural processes or human agency. Now let's recall where we are in the gospel, right? The gospel of John, among many other things, is brilliantly designed around a literary structure of seven supernatural signs, miraculous signs. Now John has already highlighted two of them, if you remember, uh, in the earlier chapters. He <laughs> transforms a whole bunch of water instantly to a whole bunch of wine, and it was good wine, right? And not only that, we heard that Jesus instantaneously healed a royal official's son from a distance across space and time and brought him back to full health like that. Not even near him in space and time. So John has already exposed this to that in the flow of John. Now, Jesus is front and center in this text. You say, well, that's obvious. But throughout John's gospel, Jesus' miraculous works play a remarkably prominent role. And for the thoughtful listener and reader, you have to ask the question, why? Why is that so important? Well, for one thing, the supernatural works of Jesus did confirm his deep compassion for human brokenness and need, clearly. But more importantly, they validate his truth claims. Each sign points to and confirms who Jesus really is. And the ultimate supernatural sign will be the empty tomb and Jesus' bodily resurrection, which will be the glorious climax of John's entire gospel and the glorious hope we celebrate next Sunday. Now, let's just say, as late moderns, we are immersed, are we not, in a cultural mood that is quick to dismiss any truth claims that cannot be authenticated and verified by a scientific method. We are often taught from cradle to grave these days to look through the philosophical lens of Darwinian naturalism. The idea there is that all there really is is the material world. That's what Charles Taylor in his brilliant work, A Secular Age, describes as the imminent frame. Now, I do not want in any way to dismiss the importance of the natural material world or scientific inquiry or the scientific method. But let me simply say that seeing through a materialistic lens that this material world of atoms is all there is greatly fails to explain reality or the deepest longings of your heart and mind in any satisfactory manner. Now, I chuckle every once in a while. Uh, about different responses to this in our, in our culture. If you've been following, the New York Times has been playing with this a bit. It started in 2019, it just came out again in March. Uh, and the magazine article that started is titled this. Well, it's subtitled, The Beauty of the Beast. But the title of the article is, How Beauty is Making Scientists Rethink Evolution. That doesn't mean all scientists are abandoning their worldview. 
But Darwinian support for natural selection is increasingly finding great dissonance when it comes to beauty. And it reminds us that scientists, even though many of them have an atheistic verdict through willful disbelief, the extravagant splendor of just the animal kingdom is increasingly hard to explain by natural selection. And there's increasing dissonance here and new kinds of explanation. Now, whether you're a scientist or not, dismissing the possibility of any supernatural reality is willful blindness at the highest level. And it ignores massive evidence. What do I mean? Well, refusing to take the supernatural reality seriously is to ignore a vast human uh, ocean of knowledge, of history, and life experience. Even though we may not have personally encountered a supernatural miracle right before our eyes, evidence of the supernatural, friends, is all around us, if we are attentive to it. The intricate design, for example, of our world, the fine-tuning of the universe, points us to an intelligent creator. And the realm of the supernatural and the transcendent is evidenced in each one of our hearts in the deepest longings for beauty, for meaning, and love, and connection. Now think with me for a moment. Right? I forget when my children were born, right? Think with me what you experience, the wonder you experience in your heart and mind as you gaze at a newborn child. Or as I, not too long ago, watched with my bride an evening sunset across the Pacific. These point us to supernatural realities. And so much of daily life we experience cannot be satisfactorily explained or truly understood apart from a supernatural realm. They just cannot. And here in our text, Jesus points us to the supernatural realm and its presence and power as manifested through him. And Jesus, again, not only points us to the supernatural, he calls now another witness to the stand. You see where this text goes? The witness of an eyewitness testimony, the witness of supernatural signs, and the witness of Holy Scripture, canonical inspired Holy Scripture. This is particularly the Old Testament. Look with me at verses 39 through 46. Notice verse 39. Jesus says to these religious leaders, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me. Now, in the message paraphrase, Eugene Peterson hits this really well. He captures it this way. He says, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there, but you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. Now, this is a case where we are so distanced with culture and time in, this, in the Holy Scriptures. Let me unpack a little bit what this must have been like. What was it like for these religious leaders who had devoted their life to the Old Testament, the three sections of the Old Testament, to hear Jesus' words. The full force of that we can't get in our cultural context. But let me just try a little. For example, think with me of some tenured mathematical scholar with several advanced degrees offering new mathematical theories at the highest level teaching at an Ivy League college. This person has devoted their entire lives to advanced mathematical theories. Only on the first day of class in freshman calculus in a large classroom, an undergraduate student calling them out and saying, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know what one plus one equals. How would you feel? How would you respond? This is what Jesus is doing to them. 
He's saying to these religious leaders, you have no clue what you're talking about. No clue. Because the Old Testament interpretive lock, the key, the hermeneutical key, is me. <laughs> to understand this. Jesus is saying, in spite of your dedication and devotion to the sacred scriptures, which is admirable, you are missing it all. Can you imagine that? And Jesus now builds to a kind of courtroom climax in our story. Notice Jesus' posture now shifts from defense to a direct confrontation. Do you see that? With his accusers. Jesus addresses their religious superhero, Moses. And he brings Moses as a supporting witness. Look at verses 45 to 47. Jesus says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now think about this context. For these religious leaders, Moses was untouchable. They were the highest Moses fan club groupies. Clearly. Frenzied like devotion to Moses. Yet Jesus is saying, you've completely missed his words. And notice Jesus is saying, my words are as authoritative as his. Can you imagine what these religious leaders thought? Not only that, he says, earlier he says, you don't hear his voice, you don't know him, his word isn't abiding you, and now here he says, you, your faith is faulty, you don't even believe him. Can you imagine that? The words spoken to these devout religious people in the first century were sobering for them, but they're sobering for us too, are they not? This text reminds us it's very possible for any of us to love and treasure this amazing book without loving and treasuring Jesus. We can put a great deal of Bible information in our brains, yet not experience a growing and deepening intimacy with Jesus. This is one of the greatest challenges for us. We can be Bible scholars and not Jesus lovers. We can spend our life studying this book and miss Jesus in it and the abundant life he offers us now and for all eternity. Jesus is saying there's ultimately one, and only one right way to read the scriptures, and that is in a way that everything points to me. And later he'll say the Holy Spirit is coming to help us do that, to put the spot on in Jesus and to help us understand this book. And to know Jesus, be known by him, and to honor, obey, and love him in every dimension of our lives. So how does this apply to us? Let me ask you a couple questions. Who do you understand Jesus to be? And what are the implications for your life and mine? And when it comes to Jesus, what will your verdict be? The answer to this question is much less about who Jesus really is and it's much more about where we are in our spiritual journey. It seems to me there are basically three verdicts that any of us here this morning can make on the evidence of Jesus. We can reject it outright, we can remain undecided, or we can receive it. So first, will you reject the evidence outright? Clearly, these religious leaders made up their minds ahead of time. 
Psychologists call this confirmation bias if you follow this. That is where we demand extraordinarily high evidence for the views that fit our existing beliefs. Despite all the credible and compelling evidence of Jesus, these leaders reject him, right? There's not enough evidence in their minds. They condemn him, but what about us? Is there a confirmation bias that causes us to reject the evidence for who Jesus is? Have we raised the bar so high? Have our doubts become willful unbelief? Have our hearts hardened? We can dismiss it outright this morning. Secondly, we can remain undecided about the evidence. A posture of agnosticism or indifference toward Jesus seems kind of sophisticated in our time, more tenable. But if we're honest, isn't it true? It's often a convenient smokescreen. We tell ourselves we'll not decide now about Jesus, but maybe later. And often our delay in responding in faith and obedience to Jesus' lordship is tied to wanting to be lord of our own lives, is it not? To be unfettered in our sexual appetites, our material acquisitions, our career advancements, our successes. But let me remind all of us to remain undecided is simply another form of rejecting Jesus. And if the pandemic has done one thing, it should have done this for us, is to remind us how incredibly fragile our lives are. How we do not have tomorrow guaranteed, no matter how old we are, young or old. An undecided delay, a response of undecidedness presumes on a future that none of us can ever be certain of, and eternity hangs on the balance. And lastly, will you receive the evidence? Will you put your complete trust in Jesus? This is what John wants you to do as a writer. His entire book has that aim. We see this in the end of the book in chapter 20, verse 31. John says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So when we place our trust in Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, we can now see that all the Bible points to him. When we embrace Jesus, we are not only given a new heart, we are given brand new eyes to see his word and his world. And we discover that Jesus is true. He's the true and better everything, that every story whispers his name, that he is the hero of every story. And we begin to experience a world infused with the supernatural wonder, soul-refreshing beauty, and we experience secure, unconditional, attentive love that your heart and mind so deeply long for. On that bloodstained cross, Jesus, the innocent and faulty, falsely accused, sinless Son of God, died for the world. Jesus took your place. He took my place. So that we as sinners, by nature and by choice, would not have to face a guilty verdict for our sin. So when it comes to Jesus, what will your verdict be? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity and the beautiful simplicity of John's words. As he recounts Jesus' words, may we respond to Jesus as who he really is, Lord of all. And may we humbly bow before him. 
as Lord God. 